When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest Gabfest Extra for Extra 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 May the fifth, twenty seventeen. The healthcare, the ACA returns, Gabfest, the Gabfest Extra on Trump Care, on Ryan Care, on the end of Obamacare, if it is in fact the end of Obamacare. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm here in Washington, D.C. John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation is on the phone. He's somewhere else. And Emily Bazelon of uh, the New York Times Magazine is in her home uh, hobbit hole of New Haven. Hi, guys. How are you? Hey. So, Emily, let's start with you. Yesterday, as we were taping the regular show, the House was preparing to vote on the revised uh, repeal of Obamacare. And they voted, and with a narrow majority, House Republicans passed a repeal bill that will now go to the Senate. So, were you surprised that they were able to get a majority to do this after the they had apparently um, failed six weeks ago? I guess I was surprised, like, in the beginning of last week that this seemed to have real momentum. By the time it passed, it seemed like that was what was going to happen. I mostly just find this, like, profoundly dispiriting. I have to say, I really feel sorrow about the state of the nation. I mean, look, this bill probably, I suppose, in its current form will not become law, but it was rushed through in such an irresponsible fashion. It had, it has the power to hurt millions of people. And I just kind of can't believe that, that this is where the country is. And the idea of taking a trillion dollars from low-income and middle-class people and giving it back to the wealthiest few over health insurance. I, I felt like I was watching the extension of the conservative, some conservatives' idea that if you're, that virtue is its own reward, that if you're living a good life, that's because you deserve to. That idea, which I don't agree with to begin with, the idea of applying that to whether people are healthy or sick I I just I really feel kind of blown away by this, John. As a political matter, uh, is this a extreme uh, you know celebratory triumph for the president and for House Republicans, or was that ceremony yesterday at the White House where President Trump and leaders of the Republican Caucus huzzahed themselves? Was that overblown? This is a triumph. Is it a triumph worthy of the? Um, 
White House ceremony? No, because in part, if you are as a Republican president can't get the House where you have more control than in the Senate to vote in support of something that they've campaigned on for the last seven years, if that's a big, tough thing, then you've got a lot of uh, challenges ahead of you. I think part of what that was about was creating momentum, creating a sense of progress and uh, team spirit so that they'd put some pressure on the Senate to not undo it. The original HCA bill failed to go to a vote because there was an enormous objection from the House Freedom Caucus, the most conservative members of the Republican caucus, and enormous objection from uh, the moderates, the Tuesday group, I think they're called, um, who both of whom objected. And so the bill was made much more conservative to please the Freedom Caucus, who then in generally came over and voted for it. Why did the moderates also defect and end up voting for it, Emily? Why was there? Why why did they not stick to their principles about it? Well, I mean, there was a lot of political pressure on them to come into line, a lot of whipping of votes by Paul Ryan. Brian Priebus was putting on pressure from the White House. And I suppose Trump was doing that, too, in his disengaged with the details way. And party loyalty won out. And also the Republicans have, of course, been talking for eight years about repealing Obamacare. Here was their chance to do that. And so to be the last body blocking that from happening, there just weren't enough Republicans who were willing to play that role. And I gather from the remarks that some of them were making today that they don't think this version of the bill is either a good idea or will actually become law. And so this whole idea of momentum, that you just pass something, you send this over to the Senate, the Senate will somehow have their own challenges and they'll present a bill, which is not this one. And then it will be back in the House's corner and the House Freedom Caucus presumably will be the ones with the hard choice to make about whether to stand in the way. It seems like everybody's personal short-term political calculus got us into this situation that is hardly being defended as a matter of actual policy. It feels like the this bill insofar as Americans know a lot about it, and they don't. I mean, not even the people who voted for it know a lot about it because it was rushed through without hearings, without a CBO score, without most of the people who voted on it having read it or done anything more than skimmed it. Obamacare has become increasingly popular, not necessarily more economically stable as a venture, but it's more popular um, and people are worried about losing it. What's the political case? We'll get to the kind of policy case, but what's the political case that Republicans have that this was a smart vote to make? If it if they're going to replace something that's reasonably popular with something that is massively unpopular, it's going to cause disruption. Why why do it? Well, because they owe they owe it to their supporters, and they've been promising their supporters this for years, and their supporters are the ones that are going to vote in the 2018 elections, and it's going to get better. Um, I mean, this is the part of it that so all of that seems plausible. And there's the budgetary effect of of um, lowering the baseline so that it makes the tax debate uh, during tax reform and tax cuts easier um, in terms of the. Can I just sorry to I just interrupt you for one second, because every time someone talks about this, how you have to do health care reform so you can make the tax reform better. I just would like to pause on the 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 wicked silliness of this, which is you take you you reduce government revenue so that it makes it easier to cut taxes to therefore reduce government revenue even more. Right. It's so bizarre the, that that it's a it's a there's got to be some term for how 
perverse that is. Anyway, well, it's continue. a it's an accounting. It's a necessity of congressional accounting. It's not a policy move. It's not made on policy grounds. It's made on uh, kind of make the accounting easier for the tax cut piece grounds. So it's um, yeah, it's not being argued on uh, for policy reasons. And none of this is being argued on policy reasons because of the sort of multiple um, pronged way they have to do this because of the Senate reconciliation rules. Any of the stuff that the that conservatives want in health care reform, and this is what's going to make this difficult, uh, a lot of the stuff that they want in health care reform has to be passed on its own standalone piece of legislation, which would require 60 votes in the Senate. And they're not going to get 60 votes in the Senate because eight Democrats are unlikely to sign on to it because of the unpopularity that you talked about. This isn't going to get more popular. A bill that was rushed through with no CBO score, where people now have admitted they didn't read it, uh, and where people are sort of discovering what's in the bill, that's not going to make it more popular. And it has the potential to put the stink on this bill so that if you're a Republican uh, having to defend it, and there may be a long period between when Republicans have to defend the House bill and when they can jump on to a Republican alternative in the Senate that might be more palatable, because only if a more palatable option is put together in the Senate, will you be able to get the votes of Susan Collins and Dean Heller and others who are uh, more moderate on this issue. So there's going to be a long period of time where it just kind of sits there and, and health care is going to be defined by the bill that just passed the House. And that's going to be tricky if you already have two facts out there, which is that it went through without a score and that people voted for it who don't really know what's in it. And then there's the actual content of the bill, which is causing enormous consternation among people with pre-existing conditions, among people who fear losing their Medicaid. I mean, I think the degree of just fear and uncertainty this is creating among a lot of Americans is like very palpable. And, and, you know, it's interesting because given that a lot of the uncertainty in the bill comes from this question of how many states will actually take advantage of these waivers, which drive a truck hole through any kind of guarantee of healthcare, we don't even really know how many people will be affected or where. But I feel like there's this pervasive sense that someone's going to come and take my healthcare, your healthcare away. And, and the end of the employer mandate actually extends that beyond the health insurance, health insurance exchanges and beyond Medicaid into. Wait, what's, what, that is something I missed. Wait, what about the end of the employer mandate? What do you mean? Yeah, they took out the idea that employer, this bill. Oh, the, says, that the larger employers have to provide. Essential health benefits, right. And so employers, I mean, in the past, when employers didn't have this mandate, most of them did provide the kind of essential health benefits that we've gotten used to. But the mandate that they have to would be gone if this bill became law. And so that starts to hit the, I think, 94 million or somewhere around there, number of people who have health care through their employers. This episode of The GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame 
And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. John, you were talking a minute ago about uh, the Senate. So let's go into a little bit more detail about what is going to happen here. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I got as far as Capitol Hill. So they, the, uh, from um, my deep constitutional study of Schoolhouse Rock, the Senate will now consider the House's bill. Most bills never even get this far. I hope they decide to report on me favorably, otherwise I may die. Die? Yeah, die in committee. Oh, but it looks like I'm going to live. Now I go to the House of Representatives and they vote on me. If they vote yes, what happens? Then I go to the Senate and the whole thing starts all over. But it doesn't sound like the Senate has any intention of actually considering the bill that the House passed. Yeah, I think they've said that they won't. Uh, consider the, the House bill, which is a change. Originally, six weeks ago or so, the Senate had said they were going to consider the House bill. So I think now they're going to consider their own. The John Cornyn, the number two on the Republican side, said they're going to take their time. There's been lots of skepticism or open opposition to the House bill. So the three or four main problems are, A, the question of pre-existing conditions, uh, which seems to center around basically the the notion that states can charge increased premiums if you have a gap of 63 days in, in coverage. I may have missed in the, in the various different versions of the bill and what's finally, finally, finally in this bill. Um, but anyway, the, just the basic notion that people with pre-existing conditions won't see uh, their prices go up so astronomically that basically having access doesn't really mean anything because you have access to something you can't afford. Secondarily, then you have this question of the essential health benefits, what will be guaranteed. Then you have the question of Medicaid and the reforms of Medicaid, knocking people off of Medicaid or, or making it so that people didn't have access to Medicaid. And then finally, related to that is the big number of people who would, be, um, uh, who would lose their health insurance by the definition of the Congressional Budget Office, which is that, that big, ugly number um, and it was 24 million would lose it, uh, as, according to the original CBO score. We don't know what the new number is going to be now, but it's going to be close to as bad. Those are all things that have to get fixed in the Senate bill. And then, you know, and then what happens? I think Emily's right. Then it's up to the Freedom Caucus again to decide whether they can stomach this bill. Do you think, Emily, that the Senate will even bother to do it? Because one option the Senate has is simply just to not really take it seriously and just they don't i think if you if you got mitch mcconnell and john cornyn in a room and secretly asked them do you want to pass a big health care reform bill on republican principles they'd be like no <laughs> they would they would actually not they, want to do it. even in their hearts they feel that way though what choice do they have now i mean the ball is in their court this is the promise that mo- a lot of those there are republican senators who don't want to sign on to this version of repealing obamacare but haven't almost all the republican senators said eight million times that they want to repeal obamacare like but, how but can they, they don't really want to do it 
but they actually well, I know, don't want to do it. But now that it's like sitting there in front of them, what would their excuse be for? Like, we're just too busy. I mean, all of the idea that they have to do this first, what we were talking about before, so then they can make tax reform easier. And oh, by the way, give even more trillions of dollars back to the wealthiest part of the country. Like all of that rhetoric has been out there. How do they, what argument would they make to get out of this now? Do you think, uh, yeah, no, I guess you're right. I guess they can't. Um, so, so if we assume that the Senate will craft a bill, which is more moderate, which they can get Susan Collins and, and, uh, and, uh, what's his name from Ohio, um, to, to sign on to Rob Portman, Rob Portman. that if they craft a bill that, that Rob Portman, Susan Collins can, can sign on to, do you think that the Freedom Caucus is going to be so principled that they are that they won't uh, that they won't settle for a bill like that, or do you think at this point the House Republicans are really eager to get the win and will will uh, surrender that principle? Well, the Freedom Caucus has been um, they they killed it the first time in con- in, in concert with and joining uh, hands with the the moderates and the Tuesday group. So I think so. Yeah, I think that's possible. I think one of the reasons the moderates gave in, even though the bill became more conservative, is in part because moderates are moderates for a reason. They can, they can be convinced that, uh, let this pass, it'll go to the Senate, get changed, and it's okay. And conservatives in the Freedom Caucus would say, no, I'm not going to go along with your game. It's either going to be fixed the way I want it or not. So, you know, that's the big next test, is whether they would go along for the party. And when the president talked about how, you know, Republicans are learning to govern, what he's basically saying is, Freedom Caucus members need to learn the responsibilities of giving in in order to get something passed. Um, have they learned that lesson? Is that what the, I mean, that's a question to ask. Have they, does the White House think they've learned that lesson from this passage? Because they're going to see it again. Um, and so if they've learned it, then when they see it again, they'll, they'll bend a little bit to get the bigger how, result. How, how the hell would they have learned that lesson? From Wait, they learned no, the opposite yeah. lesson. Stand exactly. your ground and you get what you want. Precisely. And we'll move the bill to the right. Precisely. Um, oh, John was, was add- strawmanning me. I didn't even realize he was strawmanning me. <laughs> <laughs> Can I add one more thing, which is a looming fight over defunding Planned Parenthood? I It will be very hard, I would think, for the House Freedom Caucus to vote for this bill without that provision. There are senators like Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins for whom it will be very hard to defund Planned Parenthood. Now, the Senate could lose Murkowski and Collins and still pass that's this it. bill. That's with- all they can lose, though. That's it. That would be it. I sort of think that's what's going to happen. I think Collins and Murkowski, especially Collins, is going to get cut loose in this. She's not on the list of the 12 senators, all men, by the way, who are supposedly involved in this drafting. Neither is Murkowski, neither is Cassidy, who the senator from Louisiana who had drafted this alternative Collins, Cassidy, Cassidy Collins health care plan, which is like a somewhat interesting option of the bad ideas on the table. Um, At least it allows blue states that like Obamacare to keep it. So anyway, it just seems to me like the Senate is going to temper this bill somewhat, but that if there's any prayer for the House Freedom Caucus to vote for it, and they do really seem to be in the driver's seat to a great degree, then Collins and Murkowski seem more expendable to me in terms of the vote count than the Freedom Caucus. So what's going to happen? The main reason that the House jammed this through as quickly as it did, is that it didn't want to get a CBO score and it didn't want to go into recess without uh, d- to face constituents who were furious at them again, both furious because they hadn't done anything and furious because they were considering getting rid of Obamacare. They're going to go home 
to constituencies that are going to be as energized, if not more, than they were in March um, on the left, and and not all only on the left, people who feel their health care is in danger. I mean, the, the this whole pre-existing condition notion is that, oh, pre-existing condition, that's from other people. We are all living with a pre-existing, every single person in the country either has a pre-existing condition or is deeply connected to someone with a pre-existing condition. So it's, it's, it's no minority. It's all of us. Um, so they're going to face town halls. They're going to face this massive opposition and senators are going to face it as well. How do you think, John, they're going to answer to that and also answer to the process question that they jammed it through? Uh, or are they just going to, just going to be like, suck it. We passed it. Well, members of the house have a tougher, um, tougher job here than the Senate. Cause what the senators will say is yes, there are things that need to be fixed and we'll fix it in the Senate. So they can get through. Now the question then is how, and what are you going to do and all the rest, but still they have a, a little escape valve on that for the, for the members of Congress who voted for this without getting a CBO score, they'll have to say, well, we don't, you know, we don't agree with the way the CBO counts things. Of course, they're going to count people as having insurance who they forced to buy insurance. But we're trying to remove that because we don't want government to be coercive in your life. And we think that once you remove the coercion and let the free market go, uh, that there will be all of this savings. And then I, it seems to me a big problem, if for no other reason than that not getting a score is, um, is just not doing it the regular way. And that anytime you've got to break the rules to do something, it does undermine the, the central thing. And so you can have an answer, but it just never, it seems to me, going to sound that satisfying. Except, I mean, except to people who are just happy you voted for it and don't really care, you know, and there will be a lot of those who will see this as a promise kept and, and anything to kill Obamacare. Well, that's what depresses me is that, that the kind of hypocrisy, the destruction of the process, we've become such a partisan, we're in such a partisan and dire place that none of that stuff matters anymore. People just want the win. They're like hap- so happy with the win that they don't they don't care that everyone's a total hypocrite and is not living at all by what they said uh, six years ago, eight years ago. It's depressing. Right. I mean, the other thing is like we, there's no reason for this to be happening. Like the country is absolutely prosperous enough to continue to make it easier for low income people and people who don't get health insurance through their employers to have health insurance. Like this is a basic, basic thing. And the notion that there is some great principle of freedom at stake that is worth taking the money we're spending on basic health care for those people and giving it back to super wealthy people. I just it's, it, I, I'm so with you, Emily. It is it is it depresses me and embarrasses me when I think about that a country as rich as we are has this totally misguided, stupid system of health and care. It is so wrong. It just, it's maddening. Every other country as wealthy as ours has some kind of system of universal health care, often a single payer system of universal health care, not employer based. And that doesn't, you know, have a, this idea of pre existing conditions. I bet when foreigners come to the United States and they hear pre existing conditions, they have, don't even know what we're talking about. It must be, it must be one of these phrases that just has no meaning in other parts of the world. And right. it, it's, it's gobsmacking to me. That, that after all this time, for a set of principles around freedom and choice that are just bullshit principles that people don't actually want, people don't actually really care, and they are not equipped to make real decisions the way in a marketplace you can to make a decision about what kind of car you buy 
or what kind of house you buy, where you there is an actual autonomy and information, and and you're not under duress when you make those decisions. To think that healthcare is a market like that is so wrong and misguided, and it just it's it depresses me. Right. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I mean, David, I suppose the response to what you're saying about losing this, I don't even want to call it a benefit, losing this basic necessity, is that if people don't like it, they can vote other politicians into office who will provide health insurance. You know, of course, that takes us back to the reality that a lot of the people who are going to be directly affected if a bill like this becomes law are Trump supporters in red states. I hope that people do that. I hope I don't think it's I, I think the victory that Democrats will may may harvest off of this in 2018 and perhaps in 2020 will come not because they have gotten a lot of Trump voters. However, I think it's that they're hopefully going to galvanize an electorate that is that is apathetic and get people to come out and vote and feel like I'm. I am actually under threat and I need to turn out and make a difference. Right. There is this underlying question, though, about inequality, like how much what level and degree of inequality is this country really willing to tolerate in exchange for the kind of profound cultural differences that shape how people vote? I mean, those those two really important pillars of how people think and vote and what their values are, are coming into real conflict here. Although it's also on the Democrats to provide a real alternative, I should say. John, let's finish this. Uh, can you bring us back to President Trump, who we haven't talked about that much, but yeah. what's his role going to be? Yeah, I think, I mean, his role here, you know, he negotiated, but for for a person who came into office claiming, you know, supernatural powers of negotiation. There was nothing about this negotiation that was particularly um, revolutionary or surprising or as innovative and creative and challenging and norm-breaking as all the stuff he did during the campaign. Just in the larger sense of having to either sell this to the country, just calling it beautiful and wonderful and great is not really that impressive of a negotiating technique in terms of selling it to the country. So... I wonder if he will be able to improve his ability to sell something to the country, because so far it's actually not been that innovative or impressive. And there is some point at which, A, Republican senators are going to have to be sold on this, and they are less receptive to the president's techniques as they've been demonstrated in this first stage. Secondarily, there is another phase of this that the president keeps talking about, but but he talked about in our interview, the notion of being able to sell plans across state lines and those kinds of things, which, well, which are things that Republicans want and which would take care of some of the downsides of this first part of the three-part program. But that requires 60 votes in the Senate, which means convincing eight Democrats. And so is the president going to do that? Right now, he's essentially done very, very little to, to even mouth the words of unity in the country. So how does he, where are those eight Democrats going to come from? He's got a role to play. And uh, so far, it doesn't look like he's got anything particularly special to offer in that role 
even though this was basically one of the signature promises of his presidency. And what happens, John, to all the broken promises? I mean, Trump is on the record as saying, I'm not going to take away Medicaid. I'm going to give you health insurance with lower deductibles, lower co-pays. It's going to be better. And that is the opposite of what this bill is producing. So is there... I think that's why the bill, in part, may be why it's unpopular. His voters, who are quite strong in their affections for him, I think you're going to... For that to break off, uh, I think it has to, people have to start feeling it. I mean, I think premiums have to go up. Care has to be diminished. People have to be denied. I mean, there have to be real consequences that people feel if they are going to uh, leave Donald Trump because of, uh, because of health care. But basically, uh, people have to suffer to give the lie to this. That's what just keeps getting at me. Well, that's, uh, I mean... I mean, I think you're yeah. right, but I just like it's it's kind of it's shocking. That's I mean, it should be shocking to us. Well, it depends. I mean, we'll see what finally passes. I mean, it's the anticipation of suffering that's keeping that had the vote so close and that is keeping Republicans from supporting this in the Senate. So it hasn't happened yet. All right, let's leave it there. As this discussion was going on, guys, just for those of you considering coming to our live show in Denver. Governor Hickenlooper of Colorado is going to be our special guest, I learned. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. So that's going to be on June the 7th in Denver, Colorado. So look at slate.com slash live to get tickets for that. Or come to our show in D.C. Or come to our show in D.C. on May 10th. Yeah. Which is next week. Also slate.com slash live. Thanks for listening. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai. Is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is the managing editor of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is like in charge of all the other stuff. You can tweet at us at Slate Gabfest. Gabfest at slate.com is our email address. And uh, you know, you know, well, all that stuff. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Uh, thanks for listening to this Gabfest Extra. We'll talk to you next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.